Well, I wonder if I might um, indulge myself in just a few personal comments before we turn to the Word of God. It has been a great joy and pleasure for me to be back among you here. And is this microphone too high up? Shall I turn it down? How's that? That's fine. Well, it's been a great joy to be with you. It really has. And um, I want to thank the McDaniel family. I uh, come to their home almost every time I come here. I was going to say and to thank their boys, but the boys are men now. (laughs) And um, they've been very kind in putting up with a geriatric for a few days. But it has been a joy to be with you. And I will take your good wishes to my home church in the United Kingdom. Well, now, if you have a copy of the Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms once again. And I'd like us to read in Psalm 62, the 62nd Psalm. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapour. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapour. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come again before you, thanking you that in Christ the golden scepter is extended toward us and we can approach your mercy seat And you have told us that when we do so, not to be afraid, that we can address you as our Heavenly Father. And Father, we do ask that as we turn to your word of truth at this moment, that we might have the help of your blessed Holy Spirit, that we might, within these pages, see you, Lord. Our spirits yearn for you, the living word. And so we ask that you will grant us your help both preacher and hearer alike. And we trust you to do these things for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. I want to preach a sermon 
that I preached here at Emmanuel on the, in January 2006. So I'm returning again to it this evening. Some sermons need to be repeated. If they're good sermons, repeat them if you're a preacher again and again. And it was a feature of my ministry for almost 25 years to preach on a verse or a text of scripture on the first Lord's Day morning of the new year. And I took up that idea, first of all, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, because on the first Lord's Day of the new year, he would preach on a certain text, and the text was then printed, and it became the motto for the church for that year. The main difference between myself and Spurgeon is that he didn't choose the text that he preached from. His text was selected by a fellow minister who sent it to him in the mail a couple of days before he was due to preach, and he would just study it and preach it. Well, Spurgeon was used to preaching textually throughout his ministry. Most of his sermons were simply one text, and if you were to look at an index of his sermons, Almost all of them, and he's preached from almost every book and chapter of the Bible on various texts. And there are various reasons why textual preaching, as distinct from an expository exposition of a chapter or a theme or a, a series, that the textual preaching can have many, many benefits because there are many verses in the Bible that we can retain in our memory. And not just in our memory, but we have them embedded in our hearts as well. For the simple reason that those texts have been applied to our mind and to our soul very often in times of great need. And so it would be impossible almost to forget that particular text of scripture that God used to bless you. And that text can become like a searchlight that can lead you on into the future. Well, the text that I want to bring to you this evening is in verse 8 of Psalm 62. And there are just a few words in that, six words in verse 8, which say, Trust in him at all times. Trust in him at all times. Now, before we look at that statement on its own, let me briefly give you some details well, maybe not so brief, but um, some details of the whole psalm. And the title, if you see that in your Bible, tells us that it's a psalm of David which is directed to a man named Jejuthun. Now, David is the man who has been known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's described as the man after God's own heart. And, and few men in history have been gifted or respected as this man. He was the youngest, as many of you know, of a large family. He was raised to be the greatest king that Israel had ever known. And he was a man <clears throat> whose character swung from one extreme to the other. And yet, pa paradoxically, it always had a kind of a, an abiding stability about it. It's almost like the needle of the compass always returning to the North Pole. David's North Pole was the character of God himself. Didn't matter what he was going through, his heart and mind kept returning to the character of God. 
And although he was a great man, he was a gallant man, yet, as many of you know, he was plagued with flaws in his character, failures in his calling as a king. And that basic humanity comes out repeatedly in the Psalms. Now, Jejuthun was the director of the public singing in the worship of God. So that David is giving this psalm to the man who is responsible for the public singing in worship. And in doing so, he's making his own personal psalm public property. And by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that psalm has been inscripturated for us so that every generation since it was written can now read what David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was able to write. Now you'll notice that the psalm is divided into three sections by the insertion in the word in your Bible, the word selah, at the end of verse 4 and at the end of verse 8. And apparently the full meaning and significance of that word is not altogether clear, but it's generally regarded as a kind of a poetic device which is marking out a pause for reflection. There must be a pause in the singing. So the three sections as given by David here are first of all verses 1 to 4 and then from verse 5 to verse 8 and then from verse 9 to verse 12. Now the first section David is speaking about his confidence in God in the midst of his enemies. In the second section, there's an exhortation addressed to himself and to all people to have faith in this God. And then the third section demonstrates the true picture which is seen by those people who do have faith in God. They begin to see things differently and from a different perspective. So the situation represented in the psalm is similar to a number of the other psalms, and especially if you look in your Bible when you have time, to look at those psalms immediately preceding this 62nd psalm. And the one in 61 speaks of the oppression of David's enemies. And in his extremity, David feels that these enemies are going to prevail over him. Now, most of the commentators believe that the psalm is recalling the time of Absalom's rebellion, David's son Absalom. So that when you look at verse 8, that statement, you're being given a summary of David's outlook on life in the light of all that happened to him at that particular difficult time. So when he says, trust in him at all times, here is a man who has proved God. And out of the abundance of his own heart's feelings, he is now speaking to you and to me. And he's saying, trust in him at all times. Trust in him at all times. Put the emphasis wherever you wish on those six words. Trust in him. Trust in him. Trust in him at all times. But that's what David is saying. So in six words, we're being told how he feels. And then his conclusions, we, what we're going to look is to see what the conclusions are as he's reviewing everything in his life in the past, especially during the time of Absalom's revolt. And then we're looking at David's confidence 
as he's living his everyday life in the present. And then you have David's counsel to his readers as he and they are anticipating the future. So first of all, David's conclusions as he reviews the past. And he says to us, looking past at the past, trust in him at all times. Now many of you will know that throughout the whole of his life, David was constantly surrounded by his bitter enemies. And those enemies could be extremely cruel. And at the time of Absalom's revolt, that was one of the darkest and most difficult periods of David's life as the king of Israel. David had brought a great deal of trouble upon himself. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And as a result, well, the result of that was him taking many concubines. And then his family were constantly creating trouble and anxiety. And David, in a sense, was negligent in taking a firm hand with his family. And sometimes our own wrongdoings and our own failure to put matters right, even within the family, can have a tremendous impact, not only on ourselves, but on others who come after us, long after we have forgotten these things. David was told by God, through the prophet Nathan, that his wives would be taken from him before his very eyes. And God said that it would not be done secretly, but that would be done publicly before all Israel. And little did David realize that his own son Absalom would take his concubines, pitch a tent on the roof, and brazenly commit fornication in the sight of all Israel. That is what happened to David. There's another sordid incident when David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar or Tamar. And Absalom, her full brother, finds out and then he murders Amnon. It was then that Absalom runs away from home and nurses his grievances, plots conspiracy against his own father who is the king. And Absalom becomes proud and arrogant and rebellious, seeking to undermine his father by making himself popular with the people. And hundreds of David's followers were drawn into Absalom's plans and schemes against his father. And so David finds himself in this maelstrom of troubles, mainly as a result of his own wrongdoing and spiritual weakness. And many of his faithful friends proved false, and many of his secret enemies came out boldly against him at that time. So the revolt of Absalom was a tragic thing, and it came to a tragic end when Joab brutally murders him. And you will remember David's solemn lament, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So it's that squalid episode, which you find recorded in 2 Samuel, that seems to be the background of the psalm. 
David is recalling those times. So what we're reading here in Psalm 62 are the outpourings of the heart of a man who's come through the most harrowing experiences of his whole life. And they provide us with an insight, not only about the man himself, but also about the ways of God with that man. And David suffered greatly from the cruelty of his enemies. Never ever think that God's servants have an insensitivity to cruelty. Cruelty can hurt and it can hurt deeply. Sometimes God alleviates the hurt by sending somebody to us. Somebody like Titus, somebody like Barnabas. Or maybe God will even send you to be a comfort to somebody else. And so when you look at verse 3, he uses an interesting metaphor. It's not altogether clear uh, whether he's referring to himself or to his enemies. But he says he's feeling himself being battered and almost at the point of collapse. So when he begins the psalm in verses 1 and 2, you'll notice that he begins the psalm with an affirmation of faith. But it's a very, very hesitant faith. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. I shall not be greatly moved. I may be moved somewhat, but I won't be greatly moved. The bulging wall may withstand the strain of my enemies. So it's almost as if he's feeling his faith wavering. Perhaps feeling that the wall is shuddering and tottering with the impact of all the assaults from his enemies. Now that was not a new experience for David. He'd experienced that kind of battering from those days when he was a young shepherd in his father's family. His brothers dismissed him. They derided him. They denigrated him. He grew up with the marks of God's grace upon him and he was constantly assailed by his enemies. They mocked his religion. They tried to turn his glory into a shame. And when he's being persecuted by Saul, he has to flee for his life, hide in the wilderness. He was under constant pressure, surrounded by all kinds of temptations. And all of his antagonists came to him with all kinds of suggestions. So he's saying he's constantly being battered, tempted to take things into his own hands, tempted to retaliate, tempted to forsake his faith in God, tempted to forget the promises of God. So every suggestion, every temptation is like an arrow from the powers of darkness. And there was one arrow that was sharper than all of the others. Because while they watched him, And while they waited for his downfall, they often said to him, and they would say to themselves, there is no hope for him in God. There's no hope for him in God. As much as to say that God has cast him off and that he wasn't fit to sit upon the throne of Israel. All of the other arrows were hurtful, but this one was doubly hurtful. So when the devil has used up all the other weapons against him, and us, if you're in the battle, there will always be this sharp, sharp, painful insinuation. The Lord 
has forsaken you. And the devil will use that weapon again and again against the people of God. Whenever we have fallen into sin, whenever we've been laid aside, whenever we backslide, whenever we get into great trouble, the devil will come and he will use that weapon against you. And he will tell you that God has forsaken you. And the devil will portray God as being the opposite of what he truly is. And he will tell you that God is not merciful. God is not gracious. God is not just. God is not righteous. And that can be like a battering ram to break you down and bring about your spiritual ruin. We had this, did we not, in the Sunday school hour this morning. Isn't it interesting how the devil works? It's as old as the Garden of Eden. When the devil is tempting us, he makes light of it. Has God said? What's he going on about? It's not harmful. What do you any harm? There's nothing wrong in it. It's just a small thing. Don't take it too seriously. But then, when you have sinned, and when you want to do right by God, what does the devil do? He comes and he does the very opposite. Oh, you've really put yourself in it now. That's really bad. That's really serious. He'll never forgive you now. I don't know how many times in the past few years that I have had to say to people, and I've said it to somebody in this church since I've been here, never be tempted to doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. And there will be times, believe me, when you are in the depths and you're tempted to doubt in those darkest depths what you know when you're not in those depths you know these things are true, that God will never forsake you. But that is the way the devil works. Now, you can't help seeing as you read that this is David giving us his experiences of sadness, disappointment that he's experienced in the past. And now he's looking back on these things and he's making this declaration of faith. Trust in him, he says, at all times. He's done it again and again down through the years. Look at verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. So he's using here the metaphor of a rock. And that, I suppose, would kindle many memories in his mind. If you go to the previous psalm, Psalm 61 and verse 2, he says this, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's a very graphic picture. It's a picture of a man perhaps being shipwrecked, and he's struggling in the waves as they're washing over him, and in his extremity, he sees towering above him a great cliff, And he feels if he can only get up there, he will be safe from the storm. He's far distant from it. He can't reach it. However, the very fact that he can see the rock 
is something even if he can't yet reach it. And it's still possible to cry to God and be heard even if you cannot see him. Change the, the picture of the metaphor. David had often lain in the shadow of the rocks in the desert, concealing himself in rocky caves when his very life was in the balance. And those rocky places were his safety. And now he is comparing God to a secure refuge. God has been a strong defense. And because of that, I've not been greatly moved. The wall has been battered to the point of crumbling and almost breaking, but it has not fallen. He may have been moved, but he's not been removed. And like an anchor which swings with the tide, he's not swept away by the tempest. And God did not utterly forsake him. And God will not utterly forsake you if you're a child of God. Sometimes the Lord confronted him Sometimes the Lord rebuked him, and sometimes the Lord chastened him, as he will any one of his people. But the Lord never, ever departed from him. And we should notice here that always in the context of his distresses, what is David doing? He's using his mind. He's thinking. He's recalling what he has seen, what he has known, what he has experienced, what he remembers of what God has been to him in the past. And what he has been in the past, he will continue to be. So that's David's conclusion as he reviews the past. Looking back over things, he says to us and he says to all of the Lord's people, my dear friends, trust in him. Trust in him at all times. He is worthy of your trust. David said, I have been young and now I am old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. So that's his deduction as he reviews the past. Now look at his confidence as he lives in the present and see what he says in verse 5. My soul... Wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. So here is David in the silence looking to God, waiting for the answers to his cries waiting for that help which he knows one day will come. And for the time that David knew what it was to be cut off from Jerusalem and he could no longer attend the worship in Jerusalem and it was always recognized that God was there in Jerusalem when they went to worship. So when he has now been humbled and he's being hunted by Saul, and he's in the wilderness, and he had to flee from Jerusalem under Absalom's revolt. Those were the times when men tended to associate God's presence with Mount Zion or with Jerusalem, 
And to them, being away from Jerusalem was like being away from God. But David says he always knew the divine presence in the midst of his trials. And sometimes we can make the mistake of relating distance from God geographically with distance from God spiritually. And that is not always the case. Sometimes believers cannot be in the house of God. They can't be in the fellowship of God's people. They can't engage in corporate worship. And that can be a severe testing and trial. And so you think of it even in your own life. Those times when you are laid aside in illness and weakness, as Pastor Smith has been praying for the people in this congregation, the possibility of getting to the house of God and the heart of the fellowship of God's people is not there. So what do you do? Well, David is telling us what to do. Trust in God at all times. Think of somebody that's in a missionary situation, maybe in the middle of China at the moment, and they're cut off, they can't get out. They feel their aloneness. That's their geographical location. What are they to do? Trust in God at all times. Those people who are going through the dark night of the soul and you've got no sense of the heavenly flame burning within you, trust in God at all times. When you are assailed under the attacks from Satan with a desolating sense of oppression bearing down on your spirit, trust in God at all times. Now look at what David does in verses 5 to 8. The fruit or the effect of him doing this is seen at the end of verse 6. I shall not be moved. Did you notice the word greatly is dropped out? Oh, he says in verse 1, I shall not be greatly moved. In verse 2 rather. But here he says, I shall not be moved. At one point in verse 2, I shall not be much shaken. But now he's saying, I'll not be shaken at all. Alexander McLaren says this. What power can steady that fluttering, wayward, agitated thing, a human heart? The way to keep light articles fixed on the deck amidst rolling seas and howling winds is to lash them to something fixed. And the way to steady the heart is to bind it to God. And that's what David is doing. And it has worked. His enemies are still battering at the wall. But he says, my heart is fixed and I can praise God. My faith is firmer, it's stronger. I have a newer, I have a deeper confidence in this God. And so it's so much so that it's almost as if at the middle of the psalm, his enemies have almost ceased to exist. So with a deliberate act of the will, he turns his mind to God and that really does something for him. The remembrance of past days when he trusted God, found help and succor and encouragement, that now helps him in the present crisis. Because what God has done once, he can do again. Now if you take the other rendering of verse 3, as, he, as if he's saying that they, his enemies, will be like a crumbling wall or a rotting fence, they will become nothing. Their threats will prove futile and they will be turned upon themselves. In other words, his enemies are almost insignificant. Now if you look at verses 10 and 11, he mentions two things there that contributed greatly to his rest, peace of mind in the present. And they are the power of God and they are the mercy of God. 
and that's a blessed combination. It's as if David, in the midst of his trials, he does the very same in Psalm 23. He can see beyond these things and he sees two bright shining angels as it were, one named goodness and the other named mercy. And how often did he see those angels dispatched from heaven in order to rescue him when he was in these times of trial. And here he is now at rest, thinking about that, resting in the power of God alone, that God will deal with the situation. And so you come to verses 7 and 8, and you have David with a sweeter and a newer confidence. It's as if he's now in a warm, comfortable room where there's peace and rest, and the storm is howling outside, can't touch him. And from that vantage point, he's able to look out at others, and to look at us as well, and he's inviting us to come into the room that he's found. Trust in him at all times. Come in out of the storm, into the wonderful peace of reflecting upon the goodness and the mercy of God. He's encouraging himself. And before he exhorts the people in verse 8, he's exhorting himself. You see it in Psalm 34. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. And then he goes on to say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And what he's doing here in Psalm 62 at this point is soliloquizing. And you're looking at me and saying, what does he mean by that? Well, soliloquizing is something that most of you do, even if you don't know it. You talk to yourself. And what David is doing is talking to himself. He's soliloquizing. And he's encouraging himself. And he's reminding himself And he sees that there are millions of people who bow down before idols of wood and stone or gold, of which he knows it can be said, eyes have they, but they see not, ears have they, but they hear not, noses have they, but they smell not, they have hands, but they handle not, feet have they, but they walk not, neither speak they through their throat. It is a sure sign that they are spiritually dead when they worship a dead God. And David is encouraging himself that he worships a living God. There is such a God. And he's reminding himself of the character and the attributes of this God, the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's not a dream. He's not a phantom. He's not nature itself. He is the sovereign God. He's not a myth. He can see everything. There is no place on this earth that is shut out from his sight. He knows the thoughts and the imaginations of every heart. He knows exactly what you are thinking at this moment. Everything that you're thinking, he knows it. He sees it all and he forgets nothing. And all of our lives are like an open book before him. And you remember Jacob when he discovered God at Bethel? How dreadful is this place. 
This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. These men stood in awe of God. And they had a godly fear of God. He is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment. He will deal with the wicked for their transgressions. Today the wicked may prosper, but the Lord will one day turn this world upside down. And the righteous will one day know that God will bring them out of their difficulties and out of their trials because he is a sovereign God who knows the end of your life from the very beginning. Past, present, or future are all present to him. If you, if you ever looked, opened an atlas and, and looked at a map of the world, you may be able to put your hand on that map and cover the whole of the world. But if you wanted to travel around the world, you would find how big the world is and you could never cover it. God knows every place on earth. He knows your thoughts even from afar off. There is nowhere you can go where he is not present. I deliberately chose the hymn that we sang just before in the service. Listen to Isaac Watts again. I'm surprised that you haven't sung that hymn before. Shame on you. (laughs) Great God, how infinite art thou. What worthless worms are we. Let the whole race of creatures bow and pay their praise to thee. Thy throne eternal ages stood, ere seas or stars were made. Thou art the ever-living God, were all the nations dead. Eternity, with all its years, stands present in thy view. To thee, there's nothing old appears. Great God, there's nothing new. And it is this God that David has confidence in, in the present. He knew God in the past. It encouraged him to trust in God in the present. And so he's now saying, my soul, wait only upon God. My expectation is from him. So that was David's conclusions as he reviews the past. They were his confidence as he lived in the present. But now we come to the future. And what is David saying? He is saying, as you go into the future, you do not know what is going to happen. You don't know what a day will bring. So he's giving you this sound counsel as he's anticipating his future and yours. And that's what you see in verses 7 and 8. He's looking to the future for himself and for others, declaring his steadfast faithfulness in the love and the power and the greatness of God. And he's giving this exhortation Have confidence in this God. There will be times of adversity. There will be spiritual danger. You do not know what a day is going to bring forth. So how are you going to face them? David says, by trusting in him at all times. He is your greatest security in times of danger. Do you remember Hezekiah? when he took that awful Assyrian letter from Sennacherib, which was mocking the Lord, threatening Israel, and Hezekiah, we told, spread the letter before the Lord. And that's always the best thing to do with evil letters. And he spread the letter before the Lord, and he said, Lord, bow down your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Hezekiah knew God. He knew the character and the power of God. He felt sure that Sennacherib would be overthrown because he lived for the living God. And if you are trusting in the living God, then God says to you, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, he will condemn. Trust him at all times. Doesn't the hymn writer say, fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Trust him at all times. When illness strikes... When the doctor gives you the news that you didn't want to hear and your mind is filled with anxious thoughts, trust him at all times. When the times of sorrow come, when the times of bereavement come, as come they will, they will happen in the future as they have in the past. Trust in him at all times. When that person that you love so deeply is taken from you, and you think that nothing and no one can fill the gap. It is precisely at such a time that you need to trust in him. The Lord may put your loved ones into the grave, but he still lives. And as long as he lives, trust him. The future may bring all kinds of trials and bitter adversity into your life. Trust in him. If an ill wind blows into your life, then somehow or other, if you're a child of God, it will blow some good. Trust him at all times. In the times of backsliding, as when like Peter he denied his Lord, trust in him at all times. Fall down on your knees, acknowledge your fault, confess your sin, and trust in him at all times. When like David you fall into gross sin, and you feel that you've lost your salvation or you've lost your first love, trust in him at all times. He is able to restore the years that the locust has eaten. He is the God of the second chance. He is the one who comes and takes the broken vessel and makes it again another vessel as seems good to the Lord to make it. Isn't what God has said, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And it may be that like Job, you will go through a very, very dark valley. But Job said, even if he slays me, I will trust him. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. That's the message that God is bringing to us. Now, let me conclude by saying this. If you are a true believer, you will never be lost. There is no such thing as being truly saved and being lost. You may backslide, you may fall into sin, but God will bring you to glory. You may lose out on some rewards, but God will bring you to glory. You cannot be saved and lost. But if you're not a believer this evening, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? 
Trusting in your own abilities? Trusting in the fact that you've got a good job? Trusting in the fact that you've got a good bank balance? What's your trust? Are you trusting in something that you don't even know whether you can trust in that? Would Would you go to your doctor and hear the doctor say to you, you have a terrible cancer in your lungs and you need to have it surgically removed. Would you submit your life and that surgery to a surgeon that you didn't know anything about? Or a surgeon who hadn't a clue about surgery? Would you, would you commit your life into his hands? Why trust for your eternal security in something that will fail you. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. There is a virus that's worse than coronavirus, and you've got it. You've got it. And it will do you more damage than that coronavirus ever could. Because if you don't get rid of that virus of sin with which you were born, as we were hearing this morning, if you die without having that dealt with, then you will be lost forever. So what are you trusting in? And who are you trusting in? I'm here as a preacher of the word of God, and I am duty-bound to say these things to you that if you trust in anything else you will be in for a terrible surprise and you do not know when that surprise might overtake you you could just simply find it as you drive down that road outside it might be tomorrow it may not You don't, oh, you say, you're beginning to frighten me. If I can frighten you into the kingdom of God, I'll do it. Because these things are serious. I may never preach another sermon. You may never hear another sermon. So in whom are you trusting? Let me close with a quotation that was given to our Queen's father, George VI. And he broadcast this on the radio. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Trust in him. Trust him when dark doubts assail you. Trust him when your faith is small. Trust him when to simply trust him is the hardest thing of all. But trust in him at all times. And I leave you with that word from God's word. Let's pray together. O Lord our God and our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you, the Sovereign Lord, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Forgive us if we have harsh thoughts of you. You're a God of grace and a God of mercy, not willing that any should die or perish, not withholding your only son in order that men and women, young people, might come to Christ and be rid of their sin and find hope and blessedness and a glorious eternity with you. Bless your word to all of our hearts, both preacher and hearer alike. Watch over us and take care of us into the unknown future. Be with us in our going out and our coming in this day. We ask all of these things in our Saviour's lovely name. Amen.